We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. On the night of September 17, 1961, the second Secretary General of the United Nations, Dag Hammarskjöld, was flying to a meeting in northern Rhodesia to negotiate a possible resolution to the conflict in the newly independent Republic of the Congo. His flight never reached his final destination. The next day, the site of its crash was discovered just miles from the airport. Fifteen passengers, including Hammarskjöld, were dead, and the only survivor died soon after. Written off as the result of pilot error by the official Rhodesian inquiry, the UN's own investigation did not come to any definite conclusions. But now, over 50 years later, new evidence has come to light that raises the distinct possibility that Hammarskjöld's plane was attacked. On this episode of The Truth Perspective, we will be discussing this evidence, Secretary General Hammarskjöld, the circumstances of his death, and why it matters today. In the studio, we have Carolyn McCallum. Hello. Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And myself, Harrison Cayley. And joining us today is Dr. Henning Melber. Henning is Director Emeritus and Senior Advisor of the Dag Hammarskjöld Foundation in Uppsala, Senior Advisor of the Nordic Africa Institute, Extraordinary Professor at the Department of Political Sciences, University of Pretoria, and the Center of, uh, for Africa Studies at the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein and Senior Research Fellow with the Institute for Commonwealth Studies at the University of London. He has published several books, including Peace Diplomacy, Global Justice, and International Agency, Rethinking Human Security and Ethics in the Spirit of Doug Hammarskjöld. Henning, thank you so much for joining us here today. I thank you very much for giving me the forum and the opportunity to exchange views with you. I think you have a fantastic channel, and I feel honored and truly recognize that you think that I deserve to be joining you on that conversation. Well, thank you. That means, that means a lot to us to hear that, too. Um, so I guess, well, to start out with, um, I personally have mentioned Hammerschold on the show several times in the past, but I'm sure that many listeners probably still don't know that much about him. So just as an introduction, can you tell us a bit about who Doug Hammarskjöld was? Doug Hammarskjöld was born in 1905 as the son of a very traditional Swedish family, and he embarked on a career as a Swedish civil servant. Uh, he was then studying, among others, law, languages, and economics, and he was doing his PhD as an economist with the famous Gunnar Myrdal. And um, then he embarked on a career as a head of the Swedish Central Bank and at the same time as the State Secretary of the Finance Ministry, which, funny enough, at those days, in the late 30s, early 1940s, was not considered a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Amersfoort never was a member of a political party, but he was part of uh, the architecture of the Swedish welfare state. And he then became involved in the Marshall Plan after World War II, 
and then moved on as a diplomat to the United Nations and became the permanent representative of Sweden. But he was not very much known. He was not really having a high profile. He was never loud. He was one of those typical, um, modest, laid-back Swedish diplomats and civil servants. And that was the reason, um, as we can uh, say today, why his name came up as the potential candidate for being the second Secretary General of the United Nations, replacing the Norwegian Trukveli, a trade unionist who was fond of alcohol and considered to be an unguided missile. Uh, the big powers all shared a dislike of him because you could never plan what he would do next. And they did assume, after not agreeing on any other candidate, that maybe this very unknown uh, Swedish civil servant Dark Hammarskjöld, who was uh, proposed by the French uh, diplomat in the Security Council, might be exactly the secretary general they were looking for, someone who is a secretary and is an instrument and obese to what the big powers want him to do. And bo boy, how were they wrong. Um, if... If I think if they would have known then what they knew in the late 50s, he would have never become a secretary general. And already to preempt a question for today, would anyone of the caliber of Dark Hammarskjöld would be standing a chance to become the next secretary general or anyone after him? The answer would be very clear and obvious, no. Mm. So Hammarskjöld actually turned the virtues which were considered to make him suitable for the big power interests into a strength of becoming what in today's jargon one could say a non-hegemonic secretary general who also turned out to be more general than secretary and who defined his loyalty right from the beginning as a loyalty towards the charter of the United Nations and the values and principles in all the global governance uh, normative frameworks. And when powers of this world were not in agreement with the Charter, then it was something Hammarskjöld was not willing to play along. So very soon, actually, into his office, or latest into his second term of office, um, he was actually rather proud of a cartoon which showed uh, the French head of state Charles de Gaulle meeting the, the Russian head of state Nikita Khrushchev, and Khrushchev was wearing uh, a badge saying, I don't like Dark and Nikita, uh, Dark Hammarskjöld, um, sorry, and uh, Charles de Gaulle was wearing a badge saying, I don't like Dark either. <laughs> and he sent it to a friend in Sweden and said, that's a reason to be proud of. <laughs> so Hammarskjöld, um, to bring it back to those listeners who wonder who is Hammarskjöld, uh, basically they shared, by the way, what most in... Uh, the Security Council in 1953, when it was discussed, uh, reacted because most of them, when the French diplomats said, oh, there is this Swedish uh, civil servant, Amarschöld, that most of those in the Security Council said, who? Which was actually considered a recommendation because he was unknown. And they thought, okay, he is the type of person we can mold. He will be the type of person who will follow the big power politics. Now, he was not very known, but then he, the first thing he did 
when he went to the United Nations. And by the way, he was asked on the 1st of April of 1953 by the media if he has heard that he is nominated for the position of Secretary General. And he truly thought it's an April Fool's joke, <laughs> only realizing the next day that it was serious. And it took him one or two days of soul-searching before he accepted. So when he arrived in New York, he was welcomed by his Norwegian predecessor, Trick Lee, who said, welcome to the most impossible job in the world. And what he did already then, which speaks to his, his character, maybe sometimes even to his naivete, the first thing he, he did was he started uh, in the United Nations building to walk from floor to floor and shake the hands with each and every staff member of the United Nations. And he started also initially to have his uh, lunch in uh, the cafeteria. Only then he was advised he can't do that because he don't have, have the time for doing that. But the next thing, very political he did, he was throwing out the FBI of that time, sniffing on the U.S. American international civil servants in the United Nations, because that was the time of the McCarthy era and the witch hunt. And Hammarskjöld said, International civil servants are on duty for other things, and if they meet the tasks they are supposed to do, I don't care what political background they have. And he literally kicked out the FBI from the United Nations building. That was in 53-54. So quite amazing for someone who was not known of the times, and already pointing into the direction that for him the international civil service is almost something holy which you do not touch by particular narrow-minded nationalist interests. Well, I think it's funny you mentioned that they, they told him that he didn't have the time to do that. And from what, from, from what I've read about Hammarskjöld is that, um, well, he had a lot more time than most people because he, he was so dedicated to his job that he only got four or five hours of sleep. And I get the impression that he was kind of the first guy in the office in the morning and, uh, and the last to leave at night. Um, is, is, that a, is that right? Yeah, you're quite true. He was a complete workaholic. That's also one of the important reasons why he stayed single all his life, because he felt he, could, he does not have the time uh, to reconcile his duties with uh, private life and family. He had limited private life in the sense that he cultivated quite, uh, quite a number of remarkable interests in the arts and in philosophy and in mountain hiking. But he was, a, he was really working 24-7, um, one could say. Uh, it's amazing if you visit the archives uh, and you look at his private correspondence uh, the amount of letters he was writing by hand of those days, or with a typewriter, I mean, those were communication technologies we would consider as completely anachronistic. And you go through what he was writing, even while he was uh, on duty as a secretary general, and you go through all the speeches. I think he was the secretary general who drafted most of his speeches alone and presented most speeches as a kind of pragmatic policy documents. He was uh, presenting lectures at a lot of universities, also in the USA, and they were all kind of um, pragmatic, but at the same time conceptual and bordering to the visionary. And it's, if you look through what he did, 
in those years, it's mind-boggling because you ask yourself, did he sleep at all? And some of the staff close to him also said, it could happen that the phone was ringing at 3 o'clock in the night. There is a, a nice anecdotal evidence from one of the translators. He was called out of the, of the bed at 3 o'clock in the night and was asked to see the Secretary General because uh, of some uh, unclear translation he did from uh, the French into the English or the other way around. And all he could say is, could I have an hour to come because I first have to get up and dressed? And then Hammarskjöld said, well, it's fine if you're there by five o'clock. But <laughs> that, that was the kind of work he did. And at times it was gruesome also for some of, of those around him because sometimes he tended to forget that others were not able to keep up that pace. That, by the way, includes the bodyguards. They were afraid when he went for a weekend outside of uh, New York in Brewster because he liked to walk, but he was walking so brisk that the bodyguards hardly could cope with his pace. So they actually didn't like the outings for the weekend, which were supposed to be relaxing because uh, they said physically that borders to the limits. Um, for him, mountain hiking was actually the metaphor for that. Uh, he used it very often uh, as a picture in his uh, personal notebook, which was translated under the title Markings, where he, so to say, compared the duties of his job with something like hiking in the mountain, mountaineering, where you have to give the last of your energies and resources to reach the top. But once you are there, you are rewarded for all the labor you had invested before. Well, he sounds like a... He was a, a, quite a remarkable man. Um, well, he sounds scary sometimes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've, been working, I've been working long enough uh, on, on Hammarskjöld. I really admire him, but it's also scary. And sometimes I actually, I must say quite honestly, uh, especially reading his notebook, I sometimes also felt sorry for him because uh, I'm sure he had some pleasure in life, but he was haunted by fulfilling his duties. Mm -hmm. He had uh, an ethics which was uh, much inspired by, um, one could say, the Protestant ethic, even if it was uh, much more ecumenical. But for him, life was a duty, and he acted accordingly. And sometimes when I read uh, some of his entries in, in the private notebook, I, I, I thought oh, I, that's something you can't only admire. You actually even should sometimes feel sorry for the guy. Well, it seems that, that he, as much as he felt the weight of his position, it also must have seemed to him to present a unique opportunity to bring this particular ecumenical brotherhood vision to light. I mean, you know, it, he was absolutely the man for the time. Yeah, you're right. And he even sometimes used... Um, Comparisons like saying the United Nations are a secular church, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Or he repeatedly in his speeches used uh, the notion of solidarity. For him, the United Nations were an organization of solidarity. And it's very interesting and maybe one of the less highlighted aspects. He was the secretary general at the times, not only at the, at the height of the Cold War, which one needs to keep in mind, which already made the position and mission impossible, 
but it was also the time of the awakening of the African continent, uh, the decolonization of Africa, um, the winds of change, that uh, term that was used by the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, that was phrased in 1960. And Doug Hammarskjöld was the secretary general when the winds of change were blowing. And he was always aware of these winds of change. And he was always aware of the multiple identities, but never abandoned the common ground of humanity. He was reconciling so-called otherness with the commonness of human beings. And I think that was one of his major achievements. And he also lived up to that. Um, some of his visits... Uh, to countries of the so-called global south, like India or Tunisia, um, of those days, they were so remarkable in, remarkable in the way he was able to relate to the people. And maybe one simple example for that was John Steinbeck, who was a friend of him, asked him once uh, what he, Dark Hammarskjöld, would do to find out more about other people. And his answer was, sit on the ground and listen. And I think for a secretary general, uh, even of those days, that was just amazing to have such an approach. Mm -hmm. uh, the recognition of the others as equal. And one of my favorite photos is a visit of Hammarskjöld uh, to uh, kindergarten in uh, Israel by Palestine and Lebanese uh, kids. And he is pictured by going down on his knees and talking to the children on their heights. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an extremely powerful visual message because normally when you see those statesmen or stateswomen and others, they then try to be pictured, they lift up the children on their arms. But it's a completely different story that you go down to their height and look in their eyes. And I think that is just amazing. It, it's a story that speaks so much of his approach, of his humanity, of his willingness, but also ability to recognize the other in his or her own right. And I think that was something like a red thread throughout all the things he did. Yeah. yeah. And um, you mentioned decolonization, and you used a word earlier for Hammarskjöld's view um, kind of of, of um, international civil service being anti-hegemonic or anti-hegemonic. Mm -hmm. And um, I th I, I've read several times that um, people thought of Hammarskjöld and, and I think Hammarskjöld thought of himself as a representative of the, the weak and the small nations and the people that the, the nations and people that needed a voice that didn't have it in this hegemonic system with the with these two superpowers at the time, and so he really was kind of a, a people's secretary general, and that got him into a lot of hot water, like you said about that cartoon that he sent out with uh, with de Gaulle and Khrushchev both saying I don't like dog or something like that, <laughs> and so he did he did have a lot of enemies in what I might call kind of the um, the the places of power in the in the world, the the people that hold the the big money and the big power, and so um, putting that together with the picture that you just kind of painted of Hammarskjöld, he was uh, an expert diplomat and negotiator, and I think that's what um, one of the things that made him kind of famous in his role 
was his his skill at negotiating. Um, he just a few of um, I, I'm not I'm not an expert on on his history and his accomplishments, but the, some of the things that come to mind were um, first of all he was involved in negotiating the um, was it the U.S. troops that had been uh, arrested yep. and held in China, and um, he negotiated the um, the, in during the Suez crisis in was it 1958, and then 56. 56. Okay, and then leading up to that with the, de- the the decolonization of Africa on the on the night that he died, like I mentioned, he was actually on a flight to to visit and speak with the kind of self-declared leader of the uh, of Katanga, which had mm-hmm. which had seceded from the Congo. And so there was a conflict going on in the Congo at the time um, because um, Lumumba had had been the first, was it president or prime minister of of the Congo. He had been assassinated and, and killed. And the uh, Katanga had separated and Katanga had the vast majority of like the resources in Congo and was supported by the kind of uh, international multinational corporations there, the mining interests and Belgium and France and the UK all had interests in that region. They they had a lot of money invested there. And that's where they got a lot of not only the resources but money. Mm-hmm. And so they were supporting Chishombe, who was the 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 Katangese leader at the time. And they were they were actually fighting with the UN. There was a UN operation going going there. There were UN peacekeepers, and there was actually mili- there was actually fighting going on. And so Hammarskjöld had been sent there. Um, can you tell us a bit about that, about the, what was going on in the Congo and um, what Hammarskjöld was doing there? Yes, of course. But uh, since we seem to have a little bit more time, can I start with the other two examples you also sure. mentioned before? Absolutely. Because I think they very much speak to his approach, which uh, then coined the expression silent diplomacy. I think Hammarskjöld is the one uh, who um, personified uh, the beginning of so-called silent diplomacy. And the first thing he did, which was uh, really his masterpiece in getting accepted by the big powers, was considered to be a mission impossible. It was indeed, as you said, uh, to um, try to release uh, prisoners of war that were taken by Red China, the People's Republic of China, in the Korean War. These were uh, pilots at a U.S.-American plane, but uh, the USA then said they were captured in a United Nations mission, and it would be the task of the Secretary General uh, to negotiate their release. Now, that was at a time, 54, 55, where Red China was not a member of the United Nations, where hardly any country had any diplomatic relations to China. And so everyone said, this is impossible. How should he do that? Well, he had a close relative who was uh, with the Swedish embassy in China. Sweden, as a neutral country, was one of the very few Western countries with diplomatic relations to China. So Hammarskjöld went on a quote-unquote private, completely private visit to the People's Republic of China. And of course, everyone, including the Chinese, knew that this is not a private visit. And he made it very clear that he's not coming as the UN Secretary General. And the Chinese said, yeah, 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 yeah. And being aware, the UN Secretary General is coming. 
And he met with Chu Enlai, who was then the foreign uh, secretary of state in China. And reportedly, to all what we know, there are no official protocols, but reportedly they were talking about everything in the world except politics. They were talking about culture, they were talking about fine arts, they were talking about religion, whatever. And both, of course, knew that they were talking about something which they never mentioned. And once back in the office, when his birthday came in 1955, he got a birthday card from Chu Enlai, where he sent him birthday wishes and mentioned that the same day the U.S.-American prisoners of war would be released. There you go. So that's how you do it. Yeah. So he, he met Cho and Lai at, he, at his level and what he wanted to talk about and, you know, basically acknowledged this man's humanity, his country's existence, and, you know, Absolutely. And, and that's the way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You recognize the other. You are willing to also recognize that the other has legitimate interests. You show respect for those interests. And through that, you create a basis which stands a good chance to have some mutual understanding, which might lead to a compromise, which is in the interest of both. And that's exactly what he achieved. Mm-hmm. And along similar lines, he was really smart at the Suez Crisis, because that was when uh, France and Great Britain agreed with Israel that the announced closure of uh, the Suez Canal or the, uh, the uh, bringing it into uh, the Egyptian possession would be against their interests, and they really developed a war plan to occupy uh, Egypt, parts of Egypt and the Sinai. And at that time, Hammarskjöld had it in his fingertips that neither the Soviet Union nor the USA were interested in that and did not consider it as a solution. So what he managed was, in the Security Council, that the USA and the Soviet Union, here, here, in 1956, agreed for the first time to give a mandate to a United Nations mission. That was the establishment of the Blue Helmets. And the Canadian Foreign Minister, Lester Pearson, uh, was the co-architect of that. That the UN could send a military presence to the Suez to prevent a war there. And the UK and France, grudgingly, had to play along because they couldn't object to something the USA agreed upon together with the Soviet Union. That was an absolute masterpiece. But at the same time, it also showed the limitations of the Secretary General's office because, much to his frustration, he was unable to get a mandate to intervene in Hungary. That was happening basically exactly the same time when the Hungarian government with friendly relations to the Soviet Union, asked them to bring in their troops and occupy Hungary uh, to rescue them from a popular um, revolt. And Hammarskjöld went on record in the Security Council where he said, with reference to the Suez, that the same kind of intervention would have been required in another case where he unfortunately was not able to get the mandate. So while he was successful in certain constellations, Uh, The Cold War prevented him 
to be successful in other constellations. He was not able to intervene in South America, treated by the USA like their backyard, where they uh, replaced regimes to their liking. Hammarskjöld did not approve that, but he couldn't do anything because he did not get a mandate for the United Nations. I mentioned Hungary. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything about the atrocious warfare in Algeria between French and French troops and the anti-colonial movement. Uh, he couldn't do anything in 61 in Biserte, again in Tunisia, with the conflict between Tunisia and the French, because he didn't get a mandate. So while he was successful in some situations, he was unable to bring about anything uh, similar in other situations because he didn't manage to get the mandate. To get support, however, he also realized very soon he needs to rely on a support basis from what we would call today the Global South, the non-allied movement, which was in form formation since the Bandung Conference of 1954, I believe. So, for example, for Congo, he asked, the permanent delegate of Tunisia to submit a draft resolution to the Security Council, being aware that the Soviet Union would not be able to veto a draft resolution that was submitted by the Tunisian permanent rep uh, representative. So they instead abstained. And he played along that already in the Suez crisis and then later in the Congo when, for example, the question was, who would be uh, deployed as the UN Blue Helmets, and he always resorted to those countries. It was Egypt, well, not in the Suez Crisis, but only then in the Congo, but it was um, India, it was uh, Ghana then, uh, which soon became independent. And then, of course, uh, the Nordic countries, his uh, own country, Sweden, played a role, Ireland played a role. So he always was very careful to bring into the picture the middle powers, the so-called middle powers, or those below. Mm -hmm. And he always defined the role of the UN to speak for those who otherwise would have no voice. And yep. I was just going to say that, that that was absolutely brilliant because he could be seen to be bringing in forces from countries who had absolutely no interest, no conflict of interest, if it, as it were, in the situation. That somebody from Ireland has yep. no stake in what was going on in Congo. So it could be perceived as fair, as transparent, uh, brilliant, just brilliant. Exactly. And those countries realized it, and for them, he was their secretary general. And before I come to the whole history of the Congo, uh, at the height of the Congo crisis, uh, the Soviet Union asked him to resign. That was after the assassination of Lumumba. They were furious. They accused him basically to, be, to have been instrumental in the assassination of Lumumba. Maybe we can spend a little bit more time on that and the different takes on that. But he then resorted to an impromptu speech in the General Assembly, famous, and you can still see it on YouTube. So listeners who are now getting uh, some interest in the role of Hammarskjöld, I can only encourage them Google it up on YouTube, and you see that live document there, how he was speaking in the General Assembly, where Hammarskjöld basically said, it's very easy for me to resign if any of the big powers ask me to do so. It's much more difficult 
not to resign. But as long as I have the support and the trust of those who are not the big powers, I will stay in my office. And at that moment, he was interrupted by a standing ovation. And you could see people like Krumah, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Nehru standing up for a minute or longer and applauding him on that. And those people came from different camps during the Cold War. Even the allies of the Soviet Union from the third world countries were standing up and applauding the Secretary General because he was his Secretary General. And just before his uh, untimely death, there were tendencies that he really tried to give more weight to the General Assembly to kind of reduce the decisive impact of the Security Council through the five permanent members with their veto power. He was not successful, but one could see that he was never happy with that uh, power structure and hierarchy. And he also very early said for him, ECOSOC, the economic uh, organ of the United Nations, should actually be more important than the Security Council, and he said so with reference to those young countries that just entered independence who inherited a colonial structure of their economy and stood absolutely no chance in terms of uh, the global market structures to emancipate themselves. So he very much was aware of that, and he also used it in his diplomacy. So now maybe it's the time to move to the Congo, mm -hmm. if you're fine with that. Yes. Um, well, on that background, I already mentioned uh, he came up with an idea that uh, the UN could only intervene in the Congo if the Security Council would play along, which was very difficult. That was in 1960, the height of the Cold War. Just keep in mind that was the time when the Berlin Wall was erected. Keep in mind that the two nuclear bombs that were thrown on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were fueled with uranium from the Katanga province. It was a time where the nuclear arms race between the Soviet Union and the USA was unfolding, and a time where roughly 80% of the uranium supply for the U.S. nuclear armament came from the Katanga province. So the Congo was of utmost geostrategic importance of the time in 1960. And when it gained independence, it very quickly turned into a crisis. And it was uh, the then Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, who approached the United Nations and asked for intervention uh, to help him bring back the Katanga province into the Congo. The Katanga province, which was declared a, a secession by Moise Chombe with the support of the Belgians and the Belgian mining company Union Minière, but also a lot of other mining companies of, companies of Western countries. The Congo then had already the same relevance as it has until today. Maybe one of the sad reasons why there was never peace in the Congo. So, only through the Tunisian representative in the Security Council of that time, Hamashoid managed 
to bring in a draft resolution which made it impossible for the permanent countries to prevent its adoption. But the draft resolution was pretty much watered down. It was a mandate which was so unspecific that it actually was no mandate because it only said that the UN should intervene in the Congo to reduce the violent con conflict without intervening in domestic affairs. Now, again, talk of a mission impossible. How do you manage to reconcile bringing peace to a conflict situation while at the same time you're supposed not to intervene in domestic affairs? Hammarskjöld then, in that situation, actually tried to use it as an advantage because he later on said, this mandate is so vague that I can do a number of things and test them on the ground, and if I'm criticized for that, I can go back to the resolution and say, but the resolution is so vague, what else do you want me to do? And that was the situation under which uh, the UN sent the blue helmets to the Congo. Hammarskjöld went uh, to the Congo on a fact-finding mission, and he drafted, uh, while he was uh, on the ground, an uh, organogram on how the peacekeeping mission should look like, and it's quite amazing to compare it with the basic structure which has been in place for most of the last five decades. It's basically the same. So already then he had a vision how it should be with one very important thing which has been um, eroded a little bit since then. It was very clear that every United Nations mission was under the ultimate command of the Secretary General of the United Nations, meaning no one else would have the mandate to be delegated to execute anything on behalf of the United Nations, which, as we know, happens in the meantime. But for Hammarskjöld, it was very clear, it's him and his secretariat. They are in charge. They have the command. What then happened, unfortunately, was that very quickly the situation eroded on the ground. Lumumba was ousted from the office. And that was the first really tricky situation and huge problem for the United Nations. Because reinstating Lumumba could have seen as an intervention into domestic affairs. And for that, Hammarskjöld consulted his legal expert, Oskar Schachter, and wanted to know what would be the interpretation of the mandate of the United Nations under the given circumstances. And the answer was that under the conditions of the Constitution in existence, the president of the Congo had the authority to dismiss the prime minister if he was supported by at least one minister in the cabinet, which had been the case. So in that constellation, Hammarskjöld and his advisors drew the conclusion that they would violate the mandate if they would now intervene to bring back Patrice Lumumba in the office of the Prime Minister. Instead, they offered him individual protection. Others called it house arrest. He was living in a house in Leopoldville, 
and UN soldiers protected him. But it was very clear if Lumumba would leave that house to mobilize politically against the government to basically bring himself back into that government, then the UN could not give him any longer protection because that would be an intervention into domestic affairs. And Patrice Lumumba, in one of the nights, left the house. He was then captured. He was tortured and he was brutally murdered the first days of 1961. And there were a lot of people who accused Hammarskjöld and the UN for not coming to the rescue of Lumumba. Now, what we know from a letter that Hammarskjöld wrote in February 61, when the news was confirmed that Lumumba was killed under gruesome circumstances, a letter he wrote to John Steinbeck that he was really sorry. And in the letter he said, what a nightmare and stupidity because there's not anyone who will benefit from that. But until the very day, there are controversial discussions around that. There are a number of people who say Hammarskjöld was the agent of Western interests and he cold-bloodedly sacrificed Lumumba for Western interests. Well, Henning, Sorry, you? Let, me, yeah. let me interrupt for a sec because I want, I want to read just a couple sentences from Susan Williams' book. Um, yeah. I haven't talked about the book yet, but it's, uh, it's called Who Killed Hammarskjöld? The UN, the Cold War, and White Supremacy in Africa. It was published in 2011. And um, just on the subject of Lumumba, she said a couple interesting things that uh, I just wanted to bring up. One was that, um, well, I'll just read this little short paragraph. So just two months after the independence of the Congo on September 5th, there was a new dramatic development facilitated by the CIA in Leopoldville. On the urging of Larry Devlin and with the support of Daphne Park, an MI6 official in Leopoldville, President Kasavubu dismissed Lumumba and six other ministers, uh, members of the democratically elected government. So just right there, um, I find it funny that, um, well, kind of sickening that Hammarskjöld would be blamed not only for, well, for what happened to, Lum to Lumumba when the CIA and the MI6 had their hand right in it, apparently, and Right on the page before that, um, uh, Williams writes about Alan Dulles. So um, when Dulles, the head of the CIA, heard about the arrival of Soviet assistance to Leopoldville, um, this was because, um, yeah, the Soviets had helped out Lumumba with some, with some aid um, when, when he couldn't get it from other sources. And so, of course, the, the U.S. and the West were not happy about that. Um, so uh, Dulles sent an urgent telegram to Devlin, this is the CIA station chief, saying, quote, the removal of Lumumba must be an urgent and prime objective. This should be a high priority of our covert action. Uh, the order had the authorization of President Eisenhower. Not long after, Devlin was visited in Leopoldville by an emissary codenamed Joe from Paris, who brought some deadly poisons to assassinate Lumumba. He handed over several poisons, uh, wrote Devlin. One was concealed in a tube of toothpaste. If Lumumba used it, he would appear to die from polio. So this is the kind of stuff that was going on um, right at the beginning there in 1960 and before, before Lumumba was assassinated. So I just wanted to give that as a little extra context. Yeah, I'm grateful for that um, important information. Uh, you're better prepared than I. I'm speaking <laughs> freely. And as uh, the listeners latest by now know, this is not my mother tongue, so I'm 
I'm asking for uh, apologies if my um, my English is not always at the top, but I hope that I come across in a way that it's understood what I want to say. But you're absolutely right, um, uh, quoting those things. Um, the Congo of 1960-61, and that also then applies later when we discuss uh, the circumstances of the plane crash, uh, was a hotbed for Western interests. You had mercenaries, you had the MI6, you had the CIA, you had all sort of unpleasant elements there, and they were all ruthlessly following uh, big power politics. There were also to some extent Soviet interests, but the Soviet never managed to get into the Congo uh, to the extent they wanted to. Um, that is where the critics of Hammarskjöld accused him that he was pro-Western because he was unable to intervene to bring an end to those Western um, actors on the ground. But again, that's the dilemma of a UN Secretary General who is bound by a mandate. And um, that was, of course, then the flip side of this wake mandate, which uh, for the Western interest could be exploited. They continued with their destabilization politics. They continued to support Katanga. They continued to, um, yeah, like assassinate Lumumba. And we know Devlin wrote a book before he died. And uh, there are articles in foreign affairs these days which openly acknowledge that uh, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba was the work of the CIA in collaboration with MI6. We know that. And it's not the only one of its kind. Yes, um, that was the situation on the ground. But as you rightly say, it would be very uh, unfair and uh, targeting the wrong person um, to give Dark Hammarskjöld the blame for that. He was frustrated immensely. What we know from some of the people around him, he was really angry and upset on some of the issues. Um, one example was that in 61, uh, for the election of uh, the prime minister then, uh, there was someone, a candidate, who was considered by the Western countries as uh, close to the Soviet Union. And the then already President John F. Kennedy uh, sent a message to the ambassador to Hammarskjöld saying, if the UN allows that candidate to stand for elections, the USA will have to consider to stop uh, doing their contributions, financial contributions to the United Nations. That was already then. That didn't only came up later on. And um, one of the reasons was most likely because Kennedy himself was considered to be too lenient and he had to show that he is strict. And it's on record that Hammarskjöld got very angry and said to his uh, confidante, Stuart Linné, who told the story, that he said, um, we are not intervening in the domestic affairs. We stick to the mandate and to the charter of the United Nations. And if the countries are not in line with that, then it's for the countries to decide. But we are not giving in to such pressure. That's what I meant earlier by saying anti-hegemonic. He stood up not only against Soviet interests, he stood up against Western interests. It was just, again, this dilemma of someone in charge of an operation where actually anything you did was limited by constraints. In the situation of the Cold War, on the, on the ground, the other thing which we know in the meantime, of course it was not only Hammarskjöld. Hammarskjöld was surrounded by a number of people he trusted. They were the so-called Congo Club. But some of them 
had very different views. And what we know is, for example, that Ralph Bunch, the very famous um, U.S. American, uh, Afro-U.S. American, uh, who was also a Nobel Prize winner for peace, that he and Lumumba did not get along at all. The chemistry was basically toxic. Lumumba was shocked to see that the U.S. American working in the office of the Secretary General was black, and in his views representing Western imperialism. So he said, how can a black represent Western imperialist interests? And for Bunch, Lumumba was unreliable, not strict enough, um, uncivilized. So actually, when you read the documents of the interaction of those two, then it's a nightmare. And Anyone, including Hammarskjöld, had to rely, of course, on those operating on the ground and giving him feedback there. And as far as we can establish, this so-called Congo Club did not always serve the right causes and purposes. So at the same time, they were under constant pressure. It, it was basically every day a stress situation. There were situations where you had to make very quick decisions. You couldn't reflect properly. You couldn't think them through. And that's, of course, exactly the situation where you tend to make mistakes. That was the situation then. And looking at it in retrospective, there are quite a number of people who are willing to give Hammarskjöld the credit that they said through his death, he has failed to bring peace to the Congo. He might have failed even if he wouldn't have died. But what he managed was to prevent that the Congo turned into the battlefield for the next Third World War. And I think that's a very important aspect to look at as well. You can look at the limitations of the Congo mission, but you can also look at the achievements of the Congo mission. And one of my favorite speeches of Hammarskjöld when he was under pressure was in the Security Council in I think it was May or June 1961, where he was asked to resign, where he was uh, basically criticized by the Soviet Union and the Western countries. Nobody of the important countries, well, the influential countries, trusted him, where he said in the Security Council, we managed to prevent that the Congo is turned into a hunting ground for foreign interests. Now, I love that statement. Which Secretary General since then would say something like that so bluntly. To say what we managed against all odds is to turn the Congo into a hunting ground for foreign interests. And that was exactly what he tried to achieve and where he managed to achieve within the limitations quite something. So to get back to, or to, to approach the, the, the night of Hammarskjöld's death, he was on a, like I said, he was on a plane to negotiate with Chombe. Can you tell us um, why he was going there? What were the circumstances? Yeah. Now we come, of course, closer to the most in, interesting part of our conversation, isn't it? Um, what happened was that in August and September of 1961, the situation on the ground had escalated to an extent that the local representative of the Secretary General, 
a maverick called Connor Cruz O'Brien, Irish, a firebrand. Some afterwards said it was the wrong choice by Hammarskjöld, but he was the one responsible for the local, local operations, decided that under the current circumstances, independent of the limitations of the mandate, the UN troops on the ground should try to chase the mercenaries out of Katanga through a military action and create the precondition that Shombe has to give in and relinquish the secession of the Katanga. That was first done in an operation called Rum Punch in August 61, which originally caught everyone by surprise and was successful, but then the UN troops, maybe in their naivete, were not uh, careful enough to follow it up, and uh, they were driven out again of the Katanga. And it was then followed in September, around the 11th or 12th of September, by a second operation, Mortor. Now, that was, in a sense, a turning point, because the UN did what the mandate explicitly prohibited. The UN deliberately tried to intervene, intervene even based on military intervention. Hammarskjöld, immediately after Rampunch, decided he has to go to the Congo. And before Operation Motor was started, we know that there were cables exchanged between Hammarskjöld, then already in the Congo, and again his legal advisor, Oskar Schachter, in the headquarters in New York. What they didn't know, and we didn't know until last year, was that in their communication on highly sensitive issues, Hammarskjöld was using an encryption machine for the cables for which the CIA and the MI6 had the code. The, manufacturing, uh, the manufacturer of the encryption machine, ironically, a Swede who had relocated his factory to Switzerland, had also offered the Western countries' secret services the means to immediately decipher the messages, the cables. So the communication, as we know today, between Hammarskjöld and New York and with everyone else, while he thought that was confidential, they already knew what he was communicating. And what we also know from some of the, um, the cables sent by diplomats on the ground, which were in archives and released after 50 years, was that the diplomats of the Western countries, the British and the U.S. on the ground, were very worried that Hammarskjöld in that situation is meeting Moise Schombe on neutral ground in northern Rhodesia on an eye-to-eye -eye basis without anyone else of the parties involved participating which means it's out of their control. And it seems plausible that Hammarskjöld tried to achieve through those personal negotiations that Moise Chombe A, feels flattered, because after all, the Secretary General is willing to meet him, the leader of a secession, which that brings us back then almost 10 years to the situation in China, uh, 
a representative of a force majeure on the ground, which is not recognized internationally, but recognized by the Secretary General, which makes such a person most likely more open to negotiations, and that he wanted to try to convince Moise Shombe that being uh, exposed to even the last consequence that the UN is willing to apply force of arms to give in to strike a deal to bring back the Katanga into the territory of the Congo and in return get one of the highest offices in the central government of the Congo. Now, the meeting never took place, as we know, because the plane crashed. But these were the indications that this might have been the likely agenda of Dakamashwalt. And that was reasons to be worried for the Western interests, because reintegrating Katanga into the Congolese state territory would mean they are losing the direct control over Katanga, and through that the direct control over the vast amount of natural resources with huge strategic importance. When Hammarskjöld left to meet Chombe in Dola, in northern Rhodesia, border town in the copper belt of today's Sampia, border town to the Congo, he knew it was a dangerous mission. We know that Stirriline, one of his uh, closest uh, and most trusted um, collaborators from Sweden himself, was supposed to be on board of the plane, the Albertina, a DC-6. And Stirriline told, just a few years before he died, um, told that when he was supposed to enter the plane, he saw that the feet of Hammarskjöld were shaking and Hammarskjöld took Stirriline by his side and said, you just became a father, I want you to stay back on the ground. So Stirriline was sent out of the plane again, the plane that never arrived in Dola. And the plane was selecting a secret route, it didn't fly the direct way to Dola, it was flying a route without direct uh, air contact uh, or reducing it to the absolute minimum uh, to make sure that they minimize the risks of any unpleasant experiences in mid-air. Well, the unpleasant experiences uh, did happen when the plane was approaching Dola in the night from the 17th to the 18th December. And while they had already radio contact with the tower in Dola uh, shortly before midnight uh, in, uh, in that night of the 17th to the 18th December, the plane never arrived. Now, what we know today is there were a lot of people waiting on the ground for the plane to arrive, including the highest local British diplomat including planes of the NSA, which already then was operational, including a vast amount of mercenaries, including North Rhodesians who hated Hammarskjöld. The settler minority regimes in Southern Africa did not like Hammarskjöld at all. That's a mild understatement because they considered him a secretary general of decolonization, bringing black Africa to their borders. There were French and Belgians on the ground, you name it. 
So when the plane did not arrive, they switched off the lights at the landing strip and went home and started only the next morning to search where the plane could have been. Now, you don't need to be a brain surgeon when you listen to that to say, really? It was a plane with the Secretary General and 15 others on board who had already contact and said, we are approaching the airport, we are about to land. And then the plane does not arrive, and everyone goes home or to the hotel and sleeps. That's the first thing which comes to a mind of someone who looks at the matter and says, what was going on? Then the next thing was that officially the plane wreckage was only discovered the next day in the hours of the early afternoon. It was a few kilometers away. The wreckage was burning when it crashed. There were local African charcoal burners in the forest. They saw it crashing. They saw the fire. There were even, I say even because the charcoal burners were dismissed as unreliable witnesses by the locals because they were only, quote unquote, Africans, uncivilized natives, not trustworthy, because they wanted to besmear maybe the image of the whites. But there were also white people around who witnessed that they saw the plane crashing. There were witnesses later on that testified they saw the wreckage the next morning, but already the place was cordoned off and they were asked to move on. So these are the first questions that make you wonder what was going on on the ground. And sometimes people ask, was that what just amateurish behavior because they didn't know better, those who had to deal with the situation on the ground or was it a deliberate cover-up? And I normally tend to answer, most likely it was a mixture of both. But it was definitely, I think, not only amateurish. Whatever they wanted to cover up, which is difficult to, to clarify, um, led to certain behavior, which really caused a lot of questions afterwards. I came across the local district surgeon. He was then in his 20s. He was a British. He was surfing on the ground in the Kitwe Copperbell district. When he was called to the plane, and I talked to him three years ago because he's still a professor in tropical hygiene in, uh, in a British university. When he was called uh, to the plane crash on the ground, they said to him, well, you are officially in charge as the medical officer uh, of, the, of the district of the investigations, but we have someone from the Royal, uh, um, of the Rhodesian Air Force here who is familiar with that kind of accident. You better go on a holiday. And so he did. And I asked him then three, four years ago, I asked in disbelief, didn't you think that was funny? And he looked at me and said, well, now that you ask, yeah, maybe. And I mean, that kind of small stories come up left, right, and center when you look into what happened uh, in, uh, after 17 September 1961 on the ground. You don't suppose it was hinted to him that it would be a very good idea if he took a holiday? <laughs> well, he's now in his uh, 80s, so <laughs> I, I didn't want to investigate further, but 
he felt clearly not comfortable when I insisted that this didn't make a lot of sense to me. And yeah. he then was reluctantly admitting, yeah, maybe looking at it the way I do, it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, okay. That's probably <laughs> as far as he's willing to go. Yeah, exactly. You, you said that Hammerschel's legs were shaking uh, before the flight, and uh, that suggested he may have had an intuition about how much danger he was in, uh, which also suggests that he was incredibly brave and courageous uh, in the midst of, uh, of, of going on this mission. Um, do you think he had some idea as, as to what was being planned for him, or, or um, was he uh, was he just nervous? Elon, I think, of course, he was nervous. I think everyone on board was nervous, but I think he was pretty much aware how risky that mission was. I don't think a secretary general of our days would take such a personal risk. And within the 15 others on board of the plane, it was not only him. Mm-hmm. And um, if you follow some of his entries in markings and other um, statements or, or sentences he wrote down just a few weeks and months before that happened, you almost get a kind of weird feeling as if he somehow anticipated that his life might not last much longer. Now, that sounds very funny, but there are a number of really weird things uh, that, that come up when you look into the circumstances. And definitely, uh, the mission to Dola was considered a high-risk mission. And um, it was most likely the general nervousness in such a tense situation as well as the awareness that this is not an easy task and that it also implies a personal physical risk. I'm pretty sure that was, yeah. And I agree, he was extremely courageous, and if you go back to his writings, that was the service he expected from himself. It was the service to the humanity, it was the duty in his office So basically, he had to put his life on the spot to promote humanity, peace, and the reduction of conflict. I think he truly believed in that. Well, Henning, I just want to comment on a few of the things you mentioned about the the night of the crash and the morning after. Um, First of all, the the presence of the mercenaries there... um, I, I think it was in one of the reports, it was either the, 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 res, the two, when, when did it come out? Last year, the, the investigation into um, the new evidence about, the, the, about his death mentioned that there were 500 foreign mercenaries working in Katanga. And among the mercenaries that were present at the Dola airport that day, there were a, a couple or three of them in particular that had worked with um, a mercenary recruitment agency, and one of these guys was named Carlos Carlos Haig, I think it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. Now this guy, um, this guy was himself complicit in the assassination of Lumumba. And just to give a, a bit more context about the mercenaries there, they had in the in the months prior to 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 the the, the crash, they had assassination lists of. UN personnel, because the the Katangis were actually basically at war with the UN, and these mercenaries had 
assassination lists. So these guys were, um, uh, well, it's not out of the ordinary to, to think that, or to posit the idea that these guys were actually targeting UN um, officials. Now, also, the the fact that the 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 search didn't start until well, officially, the the crash site wasn't found until three o'clock in the afternoon the next day, and like you said, they'd turned off the lights and all went home that night when they were when the plane didn't arrive right after, like you said, the 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 high the top British kind of diplomat guy in the region was there. That was the high commissioner, the British high commissioner in Salisbury, um, Lord Alpert. And he was the guy that had said, oh, well, um, no, they probably just went elsewhere. Yeah. They, they, they decided not to land here. And so the people around him thought, okay, well, oh, well, you know, he's a, a very prominent authoritative figure, so we'll just believe him. And that's, that's been one explanation given for why not many, why, why no one really did anything at that point. Because mm-hmm. Lord Alport had very, like, decisively said, oh, well, you know, he probably went elsewhere. He, did, he just didn't, they decided not to, not to fly here. And, well, which is just, uh, well, read, reading about Alport and reading some of the things he said, um, there's a lot of quotes in Susan Williams' book, and he just, just from the quotes, he comes across as the most pompous, arrogant guy imaginable. Like, I, um, and it's just, it just angers me to read the things he was saying and, and what he did that night. It was, it was the epitome of British colonial privilege. It was just yeah, disgusting. Mm. You're right, Caroline, and thank you, Harrison, for bringing in some of the facts from Susan Williams' book. Um, you and the listeners might realize I'm carried away when I talk about those mm-hmm. things, and I'm not presenting then with a scholarly distance where I would list just the factual evidence with a neutral voice uh, to back up what I think, because I think one of the things is I've been um, engaged on the issues for too long that I can keep a neutral distance mm-hmm. to the matters. And Sue Williams' book really was a turning point because what she, what she brought about was all the new initiatives that now have led to resolutions in the United Nations General Assembly to remain seized with the matter, which is actually almost bordering to a fairy tale. And her book, uh, Who Killed Hammershirt, has in the title a question mark, and she does not really answer the question. And some of the evidence she has collected is in itself uh, incoherent, if not even conflicting, but what she brilliantly achieves, and it reads like a John Le Carré novel, uh, only that it was a true story, what she brilliantly achieves is that she brings to the light all these inconsistencies, all these details. Uh, she also discovers new evidence, and she forks out all the things which at the end really um, make one wonder what did truly happen. Despite the absence of a straightforward answer, as I said earlier, there are far more questions than answers, and it really merits further investigations, even 55 years later, because there are so many things that were not only amateurish, which suggest it was a cover-up. Let me use one other example. Uh, the then very young uh, person in charge of the uh, Rhodesian uh, investigation in the crash was later in charge of the investigation of the plane crash of the Helderberg, a South African plane which uh, had an arms cachet on board, 
which was then covered up as an accident. And the very same person was in charge of the investigations of the plane crash of the aeroplane on board of which uh, Samora Machel, the Mozambican president, was dying on South African ground. And miraculously, all three investigations suggested that was a mere accident. And, I mean, these are the kind of coincidences where you don't really be, uh, need to be uh, a fan of conspiracy theories that you really start wondering what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, indeed, British diplomats on the ground, they were arrogant to an extent that you say, what the hell? They, they were rubbing shoulders uh, with uh, the white settler minority regimes um, and for them, Hammarskjöld was a bit a traitor of Western civilization. Maybe they wouldn't say it like that as diplomats. Maybe they would only say it behind closed doors like that. But it was very obvious that they could not relate uh, to the approach uh, of Dark Hammarskjöld to the issues in African societies and states. Mm-hmm. Um, Henning, um, I want to give some background to the recent developments in the investigations um, leading up to Susan's book, because um, just to give some background, first of all, there were there was the official investigation conducted by uh, Northern Rhodesian officials, and uh, that was in 1961, and then followed up by the official Rhodesian Commission um, of Inquiry, and then the UN Commission. So all these were going on in the in the months after the crash, and um, I just want to read one. One little quote from Susan's book on that first, um, or on the Rhodesian Commission. So this was the the Northern Rhodesian Commission in the months afterwards. She says, From the start, the proceedings of the Rhodesian Commission had been based on the premise that the crash was an accident. Quote, At the outset, we would say that no reason was suggested, and we cannot think of one, why anyone who might have been able to attack this aircraft from the air should ever have wanted to, to attack it, as it carried Mr. Hammerschold on the mission he was then undertaking. So that, I, when reading the book, I just wrote next to it, oh my God. Because right there in the first commission, they're saying, well, he could. why would you even think about it? Because cause Hammerschold was on there. Why would anyone want to kill him when he was on the plane? Which is just completely ridiculous, especially in light of, of the new evidence. But so so that was that was like like you said fifty five years ago just over or under fifty five when all these commissions had finally um, you know been finalized and the the UN Commission didn't couldn't come to any definite conclusions so it left open um, several possibilities just because they couldn't um, establish evidence for any of them so there were the the options on the table were something like pilot error um, some mechanical failure. And or an external attack or hi- or a hijacking, and so they couldn't determine whether any of those had happened or not, and so things kind of stayed like that for until 2011, when um, when Susan Williams published this book, and that led to some very interesting developments. It um, it led to I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong. What was it called? The the Hammerschold Report. Um, can you just tell us a bit about what happened after Susan's book and how that led to um, the, the latest UN resolutions? I will gladly do so. Let me just add one minor uh, thing to the story where you say, why would one want to kill Hammerschild? Then I can add, why would one want to put a ace of spades 
into the uh, shirt collar of Hammarskjöld while he was lying dead on the ground. Mm-hmm. I've seen the photos. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone didn't want to kill Hammarskjöld, why would someone put the ace of spades next to the body on the ground? Mm-hmm. And those who, who might not remember that, that was the symbolic sign of those execution squads who was wandering around that days in Vietnam and somewhere else, they could have put an ace of spades uh, next to Lumumba if they wouldn't have burned him completely. Um, it was a clear symbolic sign that some people around there did in a very cynical way welcome that the Secretary General was killed in whichever way. So, And that highlights that he had more enemies than friends, especially in the Western countries. So the one thing that was a blessing in disguise was that while the official UN Commission of Inquiry unfortunately followed most of the recommendations of the two uh, Rhodesian inquiries and investigations, and even as we know today through some cables that were released in the archives, were even willing to correct their report. Now, listen to that. They were willing to correct certain statements in their report upon suggestions of British diplomats. We can prove that now. That's only a cable we we discovered a couple of, of weeks or months ago. So the UN investigation of 61 was willing to adjust their report because Western diplomats wanted to rewrite the report. But the one thing they stopped short was of was to buy into the pilot's error story as the exclusive explanation. And they ended by saying they cannot exclude any of four possible reasons for the plane crash, which included external influence or sabotage. And because of that, the General Assembly of the United Nations, when adopting a resolution uh, on the basis of the report in 1962, decided that whenever there is new evidence, the United Nations has the authority to revisit the investigations. And that was the entry point. So when Susan published her book, and this is where the kind of fairy tale starts, because uh, it's one of those classic stories where individuals uh, deciding rather spontaneously can at the end make a difference. Uh, That book was read by a member of the House of Lords in London. He was a former deputy minister and a trade union activist, um, not the typical aristocratic lord. He was the working class lord based on his earlier merits. And he read the book. He didn't know Susan Williams. And he reacted like you now do and others who said, what the hell was going on? So he said, we need to do something. So he found Susan Williams and said, I read your book. We need to do something. And Susan said, "Uh, what do you want us to do? And then he said, we established an enabling committee. That was then how it was called. And the enabling committee will try to establish a private uh, investigation of uh, jurists, legal experts with international re- reputation to look up what you present in your book to see how much of it substantiates further investigations. So this handful of people was formed, 
uh, in total seven people, including uh, another lord, including a former secretary general of the Commonwealth, including a former Swedish archbishop, um, two, three other people. I was one of them as well. And we came together, no money, no connections, and said, so what are we doing? So we scouted around and we approached four uh, highly qualified uh, international legal experts and asked them if they would be willing on a pro bono basis, because we had no money, to revisit the Hammarskjöld case within a year. We would fund uh, part-time secretarial support for them. We would fund the necessary travels to Dola for two of them. And if they would be willing then, in consultation with other experts, to just check to what extent all those evidence presented by Susan Williams in her book is watertight and merits follow-up investigations. And we got four highly qualified people. One of them was uh, Richard Goldstone, the retired South African uh, constitutional justice. Uh, the other one was uh, Hans Corell, a Swedish legal expert who was the Undersecretary General for Legal Affairs at the United Nations before retirement. Um, the third one was a uh, High Court judge uh, from uh, the Netherlands, Wilhelmina Thomassen. And the first one was Sir Stephen Sedley, another lord uh, who was uh, a retired constitutional judge, no, not constitutional, High Court judge from the UK. All four very distinguished, very professional. And a year later, they submitted a report. We, in the meantime, had horrible difficulties to get the finances. And I can mention it now because the one who provided most of the money, most generously, and at that time didn't want to be mentioned, was the late Henning Mankell, the famous uh, Swedish uh, author of these uh, crime novels and other novels. Uh, he twice... Uh, donated considerable money that the commission could work uh, kind of properly and that we could fund the secretarial services uh, of, uh, of that person in support of the commission. And after one year, those four jurists presented a report which we made public without having seen it before because we needed to protect ourselves from accusations that we were trying to cook up something. We presented it in the international court in The Hague. And the report was very measured, very modest, very meticulous, in plain legal language, but it clearly reached several conclusions, which included that there were numerous local credible African witnesses who were all systematically excluded from all of the previous investigations but had still alive and had independent of each other verifiable new evidence that has to be taken serious, which points into the direction that there are strong assumptions that there was, when the plane was approaching Dola Airport, a second plane in the air. And certainly the commission said they could establish the presence of the NSA on the ground and while they were stop, stopping short of coming up with their own conclusion, they said, we think the evidence merits further investigation, and we would strongly recommend that one of the entry points is 
to try to get access to the air traffic communication between the plane approaching Dola Airport and the tower at Dola Airport, which with almost certainty was recorded by the NSA stationed with several planes at Dola Airport. And then they suggested on the basis of access to that air traffic communication, one would maybe find further indications what was happening in the last minutes or even seconds before the plane crashed. That report was then handed over to the office of the Secretary General. That was in October 2013, I believe. And Ban Ki-moon, who himself was very much uh, inspired by Dark Hammarskjöld, I must say, I've seen him twice speaking about Hammarskjöld, also in Uppsala, visiting the grave. And one could see he was deeply touched and moved personally by Hammarskjöld and the legacy. Um, he, in consultation with his legal experts, then decided that this report of the Independent Commission merits recognition by the United Nations member states. So he sent out a circular to all member states where he announced that the report is translated in all official languages of the United Nations and that he will put on the agenda of the United Nations General Assembly session that the report is discussed in the General Assembly. And his recommendation would be that the General Assembly considers to establish a United Nations established initiative to look further into the evidence available. Now, then comes the next part of the fairy tale or of the unforeseen stories, because that happened in mid-2014, at a time where there was a conservative Swedish government. And that Swedish government declared already in the build-up to that, because we had mobilized on the ground in Sweden and in other countries uh, through uh, different initiatives, had declared stubbornly also to journalists and others who were able to, to get interested in the case that Sweden is not interested in reopening the case. Now, given the situation how the United Nations operates, Every other country we tried to mobilize, if that agenda item is brought up in the General Assembly session, said, if the Swedes are not taking the initiative, we are unable to do it. Because that's first and foremost a matter where the Swedes should stick out their neck, and then we can support it. We can co-sponsor resolutions or submission draft resolutions, but we cannot take an initiative without the Swedes taking an initiative. So luckily, I must say, luckily, that session until September passed and there were too many other things, more important things, the General Assembly had to deal with so that that agenda item was never brought up in the General Assembly. Then came September 2014 and elections in Sweden and from one day to the next, the government changed. And we now had a Swedish government from the Social Democratic Party and the Green Party. And a foreign minister who was before a UN special representative, Margot Wallström. 
And she did a number of uh, things not expected. Uh, you might recall that she recognized uh, Palestine, uh, that she openly went uh, criticized Saudi Arabia. She did all sorts of things that made her not very popular in the West or in reactionary regimes. But one of the things the foreign ministry also said was that they immediately said, we want to have a follow-up on the investigations of the plane crash in Dola. So when the agenda item finally was brought to the attention of the General Assembly in early December of the year, the Swedish permanent representative tabled a motion in the General Assembly with the support of more than 50 other countries co-sponsoring the motion to say, we take the independent commission's report that serious, that we follow the suggestion of the Secretary General and we establish a small commission of experts tasked to look into the commission's report to verify if it's sufficiently credible for any further up investigations. So basically, the UN will now properly check if the four legal experts were dreaming or if they have a serious case. That, of course, was a money problem. So it took another two, two weeks to sort it out. Then the UN forked out of the limited budget 500,000 US dollars and appointed three experts, a retired chief justice from Tanzania, who was uh, the, uh, the head of the expert commission, a uh, ballistic expert from Denmark, and someone who was uh, a, a lawyer or legal expert from Australia. And those three were tasked within three months to verify the findings of the independent commission. And they took only 10 weeks to submit their report, which made some of us uh, anxious that we felt if they don't even use the three months, then we can't expect a lot from uh, that expert commission's report. But surprise, surprise, while the three experts again did a very down-to-earth, meticulous job and eliminated some of the assumptions, they said there remains sufficient doubt that there might have been a second plane in the air, that there is more credibility given to local witnesses that have not been considered before, and they recommended that there is a follow-up investigation. And that was brought again by the Secretary General to the attention of the General Assembly, now again with the recommendation that the General Assembly might consider to appoint or, or to decide in a resolution that further investigations are made. And the experts also urged that archival material which was not released even to them as UN-appointed experts should be tried to get hold of. And they mentioned deliberately the archives of the NSA, of the CIA, and of MI6. And they had attached two letters from the uh, United Kingdom and from the USA, where both uh, delegations to the United Nations explained to the expert commission that they are unable to release highly classified material, even 54 years later, uh, because of national security interests. And the expert said, as long as we don't know what is in that material, we cannot get closer to an explanation what really happened in that fatal night. So then came December last year, 2015, 
and the General Assembly had again on its agenda the item of the Commission findings of the experts, and there was another draft resolution submitted by Sweden, which again appealed that, uh, if adopted, that those certain countries, uh, that's diplomatic uh, parlor that you don't name, uh, call them by name, that certain countries are urged to release the documents in their possession to bring more clarity to what really happened. And that time, that draft resolution was co-sponsored by more than 70 member states of the United Nations, including, and that's most interesting, including Belgium, France, and Russia. But who was not among the co-sponsoring countries was the UK and the USA. And that resolution was then adopted by the General Assembly. And this is where we stand now. And we basically have reached, I hope not a dead-end street if I say so, but we have reached a point where the next question is, what on earth can we do to convince the USA and the UK to release the documents which we believe are in their position, which would offer more details and an indication what really happened that night. And while we are talking, um, just this week, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who really made it also his personal matter, presented the annual Dark Hammarskjöld lecture in Stockholm, which was organized by the Dark Hammarskjöld Foundation, and he repeatedly returned to Dark Hammarskjöld and the crash of the plane at Dola, and repeatedly urged that those countries should open their archives to allow us to establish in a better way what happened. But if that will happen, I don't know. And several people, including journalists in media like the New York Times, already asked what really happened then if they are willing to accept this egg on their faces not to release the documents. And that's, of course, the question they are inviting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know, like, I, I've read a bunch on uh, political issues, various controversies, and it's amazing how many times those two words come up when the United States or Great Britain is confronted um, with trying with with releasing certain documents relating to these controversies, and they say, "Oh, well, we can't release them because of national security." And so it's gotten to the point for me where when I hear that, I just automatically think, "Okay, they must be guilty." They must <laughs> be. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's are? that's of course the risk they take. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Or they're just so arrogant. They say, well, you can think we're guilty, but we don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure. After all, it was the UN Secretary General. That makes it really big. Mm-hmm. I mean, Devlin had no problems to release uh, in, in a book towards the end of his, uh, his life his involvement as a CIA agent and the involvement of Dallas in the assassination of Lumumba. We all know how often... Well, we know how often they did assassinate people. I'm, I'm sure we, there's a legion of assassinations we don't know about. But the killing of a secretary general, even if it might have been 
unplanned in the sense that it was maybe a plane hijack going wrong, whatever. We don't know. But that makes it a really big thing. Who wants to be involved in the killing of the Secretary General of the United Nations and 15 others on board of the plane? But that's the irony of it. By not disclosing the material in their position, they basically add fuel to the flames and they foster the suspicions that something was really going on then. Because otherwise, why don't they open the archives? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, it's um, the, the downing of the plane. Uh, it's it, it's a, a story we've heard before. Um, in 2003 or 2004, Henning, I don't know if you've heard of this senator. Uh, we had a Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota, who uh, was one of the few people, um, you can count them on one hand, who voted against uh, going into Iraq and uh, really uh, riled up um, the ire of uh, the Bush administration and, uh, and a lot of um, uh, the imperialist uh, warmongering faction in the U.S. He was, actually, he was key. He was the swing vote mm -hmm. one way or the other. He held mm -hmm. it. A real thorn in the side of, of these people, and um, his plane went down uh, at some point, um, and not two hours before, you know, not two hours after the crash, uh, there was already, you know, uh, intelligence agencies, you know, scouring the site. Um, so it happened under very mysterious circumstances, and, um, uh, you know, it, it all point all. You know, it all points to this kind of mechanism for assassinating people who are uh, calling uh, justice or truth to power. Still, I'm, I'm. I didn't know that story. I must admit, I'm when it coming when it comes to U.S. American domestic affairs, I'm as ignorant as a lot of U.S. American <laughs> citizens, if I may say, with due respect, are ignorant when it comes to the rest of the world. Yes. But I'm not surprised to hear that story, and uh, I really don't think we have to be accused of uh, cultivating conspiracy theories that oh, this nourishes suspicions that something was not okay. Mm. That's a very common um, instrument, uh, which we in the West uh, are not uh, reluctant to apply when it comes to assassinations by uh, the Russians. Mm -hmm. um, then we take it for granted, yes, of course, the Russians kill people uh, who are not in line with their interests. Well, I'm sorry, I don't think there is a big uh, difference in uh, superpower behavior, no matter from where they come. That is just how superpower is applied, and they have the means to do so. And unfortunately, in many cases, they also have the means to cover up. But it needs people like you folks who provide me with the opportunity to engage with you in that conversation and people like us in this enabling group and others uh, to drag it out of the closet and say, hello, even if we don't know what happened, there's enough stuff to talk about mm -hmm. and to make it an issue. It does not appear. And another aspect is a human aspect. Um, I know that, for example, the family of those deceased, but especially the family of the pilot and the co-pilot, the sons, they had ever since 1961 lived with the assumption that the plane came down because of pilot's error. Mm -hmm. 
meaning their fathers and 15 others died because of an error of their fathers. I think there is a, an, a level also of human empathy that we owe it to those people who have to live ever since then with a kind of being blamed indirectly or feeling guilty for that to say, stop it. It's not that easy. And we are refraining from putting the easy way out, blame on individual people and say, oh, it was controlled flight into terrain or it was a pilot's error. That, by the way, is one of the concerns I have about a recent uh, TV documentary that was broadcasted by the National Geographic in its Mayday series. It's, uh, I understand, a rather prominent series of airplane crashes. And just now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in several countries, uh, was televised uh, a new uh, uh, issue, and it's called Deadly Mission, and it deals with Dola and the plane crash. And it's a little bit dramatic, overdramatic, but it comes to an end which is really not in line with what we know today, I must say. And then again, you ask yourself, why are they so reluctant to call a spade a spade? They pretend as if it was controlled flight into terrain and don't give sufficient credibility and recognition even to what has on the level of the United Nations been set and decided and what the Secretary General of the United Nations is saying. And then again, you start wondering, uh, without becoming paranoid, um, what kind of cover-up can there happen? Is this so unpopular that National Geographic is just not able to afford to put it in the way you would be able to put it on the state of affairs that is known to us now? I think you can look on National Geographic as another propaganda arm. Okay. Truly, truly. There's a lot of, a lot of questionable information that gets propagated from that particular source and they have this, this great weight of history of being such a long a long standing institution that people will buy it just because it was National mm. Geographic. Which is very unfortunate, I must say. That's it why is. I want to mention it because some of those listening out there they might have uh, by coincidence seen that or might see it. And then I just warn them, have a close look, but be very careful, especially when it comes to the end when first uh, those uh, suspicions are introduced, but only to be at the end dismissed again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're still planted. Yeah. 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 No, it's classic. (laughs) Well, Henning, there were, uh, there were a few details I wanted to share about the, the UN, the the latest UN report um, and which came from the, the Hammarskjöld report commission report that you guys did um first of all the 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 topic of the nsa and the cia one of the bits of evidence that um susan puts in her book and which was investigated in these in in these two venues was the report of um an nsa employee who was stationed in at the nsa base on the island of cyprus the late mr southall yeah yep and he he told, uh, well, apparently he told numerous people um, before he told Susan Williams, but the, the story is in her book, and how he w- was um, stationed there, and one, the evening of September 17th, he got a call from someone else at the base saying, oh, you better 
um, come over here because we've something big is going to happen. And so he went down and he says that when he got there, um, he, he either heard or read a report, he wasn't quite sure in his memory, um, that was a first-hand report based, that sounded like it was coming from a pilot saying, okay, I've got the DC-6, um, you know, it, um, and I've, I fired and it's going down or something like that. And he heard this report and it, had, it, had set, it was seven minutes after the, the incident. And then there was uh, another person, Abrams, I believe, who yep. had heard a similar, a similar story. Um, I, I'm, I'm not clear on the details of that. I forget exactly what he heard. But um, it was also kind of this, this intercept, this radio intercept. And so they, the, the UN looked into it, and they were trying to verify it. And they could verify that Southall was, was employed but they, there were certain details that they couldn't confirm, and the U.S. would not, uh, again, would not give the information that would be able to confirm those details. So again, th so these, even though they're they're highly um, relevant and suspicious, it's it's um, you know it's they're technically impossible to verify. But I think that the mm -hmm. that they that they sound credible to me at least, and it, it brings to mind that there's when, thinking about this national security thing and the documents. The impression I got from reading the reports was that the, the U.S. had said, well, these institutions like the NSA and the CIA had said that they had something like three, three documents that related to the parameters uh, of the request, but that they couldn't release them, and that it turns out that these documents, which one of the, the U.N. investigators was able to read but not quote or talk about, w weren't relevant, basically. So they, well, nothing to do with, with, uh, with the plane crash, so... They were, but they were highly sensitive. But that just leads me to think that um, these are the three documents that they say, you know, from that time that match these per parameters. But I'm sure that there are there is a ton of information that is available that they just haven't even acknowledged exists. Mm -hmm. That's just my suspicion, because when you hear about, like you said, the the investigation has has said that it's pro it's it's not outside the realm of possibility. It seems it seems probable that the that all this air traffic and radio um, communication would have been recorded and was recorded. So, where is it, and mm -hmm. why aren't why aren't they even admitting that they have it? Yeah, especially because it does line up with some of those early witnesses that were dismissed as not even worth talking to the the charcoal burners and the wife of one and somebody else who was out in the bush, all speaking of two planes and a fire on top of the plane. A flash yeah. on top of the plane, and you put these two things together, and you go, "Come on, mm -hmm. yep. come on!" There's, you know, a you have credible people. Yes, they're elderly now, but they still seem to be coherent. And several witnesses who were not known to each other spoke of the same thing. And then you line that up with this apocryphal story of this guy who says, mm -hmm. "I was called in to to listen to this," and it's like, really? <sighs> yep. yep. But that's exactly the situation. And one also wonders, why are they not releasing it? Because if they would release uh, air traffic recordings, one could possibly get an, um, an idea if that was a deliberate shooting down or if it was, as uh, Mr. Southall would suggest, a shooting down by accident. That mm -hmm. actually the intention was to redirect the plane, right. which reportedly happened uh, on different occasions before to prevent, so to say, the meeting taking place without doing any uh, physical harm to the people on board. Right. And then by 
by accident, basically, shooting down the plane. Um, we don't know. We really don't know. Mm-hmm. And what we also don't know is why they do not release the documents. It's, it's really, uh, I mean, how much more damage can you do to your own reputation? Not releasing documents where even the Secretary General urges them to do so. And they say, no, it's national interest. Yeah, you might be right. Maybe it's the arrogance of power that they say, who are we to care about what the Secretary General or the, the, the opinion of concerned people is about? We don't care in any case. So why should we care in that, in, in that specific case? But that's, of course, where we're getting very desperate, where we, we thought we are so close. Uh, we have achieved something which, if someone would have told me um, five years ago, when Susan's book was released, that uh, there are two resolutions adopted in the UN General Assembly, that there is a Secretary General, okay, admittedly, at the end of his second term, but blasting full power, saying we need to do something to establish the circumstances of the death of Dark Hammarskjöld. If someone would have told me five years ago that would happen, I most likely would have said yes, and the Pope is a black Muslim lesbian. <laughs> because, I mean, who would have believed that? But now the frustration kicks in. We have come so far, and now we are stuck. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, a big question that bothers us. What else can we do now? Well, maybe maybe just hammering on the fact that uh, the NSA is uh, so resistant. Why why keep a secret? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like you can pressure uh, the NSA in any way. Uh, it's this behemoth of secrecy uh, and national security, so called. But um, at, at least it would be bringing more attention to the one or two things that prevent the investigation from going forward. I don't know. I'm, I'm racking my brains here no, with you. Well, <laughs> absolutely, Elon. That's why I think you, you guys are doing a great job, because we are talking now almost two hours on the issue and share it with people out there who might have not heard of that before. Mm-hmm. So we are not necessarily preaching to the converted. Um, you, you asked me before I should explain who was Doc Hammarskjöld. Uh, rightly so. And maybe those people now become even more aware of what's going on in this world. And that's a great job you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that, that brings me to another point um, in the description of the show. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about and to, to kind of get to was the, the importance. Like, why does Doug Hammarskjöld's death matter today? Now, the way I see it, um, if I look back at the, the, the last 50, 60 years of history, especially in the 60s, there were a lot of people, a lot of uh, world leaders or very influential people that were assassinated. And in my mind, these were people like Dag Hammarskjöld who were working to make a difference, not only in the world stage, but in their own countries. Several assassinations in Africa, South America, all over the world, in the United States. And if I look at the trajectory of history since that time, it brings a couple things to mind. One was something you said at the very top of the show, Henning, about... Um, the prospects of a Hammarskjöld-like Secretary General getting that position today and how it's so remote. And another, th- one, the other thing is that this idea of an anti-hegemonic policy or view of the world, if I look at the last 60 years, it seems as if the, the U.S. in particular 
has ramped up the hegemony to the, to the max level. Now this, um, and especially in the last 16 years or 15 years, um, and 9-11 had a lot to do with that and the, the, um, the Patriot Act, how, um, well, just to get into a little detail of that, there was the whole thing about the anti-ballistic missile treaty and the U.S. basically used the events of 9-11 as the justification for pulling out of that treaty. And the, the way that was all set up was the, the end result was that the United States could then basically do whatever it wanted with no, um, with no other country having the, the potential to deter them from doing whatever they wanted, and that would include regime change in other countries, meddling in the foreign affairs of other countries, and violating their sovereignty. I think that the the values that Harmerschold stood for and that he exemplified in his um, in the performance of his duties as Secretary General are not only very much lacking in our world, but not even talked about very much. Now, the ironic thing for me is that I see a lot of of these values being stated publicly by nations like the BRICS and like Russia. I mean, it's it's been Russia these past couple of years that have been talking about the need for international law and United Nations and basically following the rules and not not um, not obeying the dictates or not living in a hegemonic system, a unipolar system. And um, so it's just it strikes me as uh, on the one hand very depressing that they're that the UN, for example, has has not, in my mind, lived up to those ideals since then, and the the inherent problems in the way the UN is structured, which Hammarskjöld, um, you know, felt the effect of, and it looks like he was working towards possibly doing something to to better the the UN as an institution, like you mentioned, giving more power to the General Assembly as opposed to um, the Security Council. And um, but on the other hand, on the other hand, there is a bit of hope in the sense that, um, first of all, we're having this conversation today and we're hearing what you have to say and we're learning a bit about Hammarskjöld and what what he did and what he stood for. And at the same time, those values are still in the world. Certain people hold them. And I think we can I think I, I can say that we here personally, you know, all see the value in in that approach and in that worldview and that at least you know at least there are some people that are seeing it and able to to appreciate it and who knows um who knows if anything will be achieved but at least i think the least we can do is is affirm those values and share them and point out when when and how the geopolitical situation on the planet does not match up to those ideals mm-hmm. you're absolutely right harrison and i think dr commerford maybe in different words, would have said exactly that same. Mm-hmm. And very early in his office, he said, the United Nations is not there to bring heaven on earth, but to prevent us from hell. <laughs> and he always had a belief that there are enough people around who are willing to contribute to a world which becomes a better place. But maybe there's one other aspect still uh, that uh, relates to that, but should also be spelled out. Um, It's when people are killed, no matter where and when, and one does not ask why and how one helps to kill them. And Hammarskjöld is just one case, a very prominent case, a very spectacular case, 
but it applies to a lot of other killings as well. Those of us who care, who are concerned, we should have an obligation to ask those questions, to investigate. And it doesn't need to have such a big name like Hammerschild, but it needs to happen whenever there is injustice in this world which uses physical violence trying to solve problems uh, by creating even more injustice, that we should have an obligation to inquire. Um, I say that now as a German-born, as you could hear from my accent, who comes from this never-again generation. You cannot close your eyes in front of the evil in this world if it happens on a collective or on an individual level if you are serious about the never again slogan mm-hmm. and Hammarskjöld is just one of the prominent examples mm-hmm. Well Henning I think we're approaching the end of the show um, as a final question um, I just wanted to ask you how you became involved in this um, like I mentioned uh, in my introduction you were the director of the Hammerschild Foundation and your director emeritus there. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, how you got there? Um, when did your interest in Hammerschild start? And what kind of work does the Hammerschild Foundation do? Do we have another two hours? Let me try to make it very quick. But I just made reference to my German background. I'm, I'm born in West Germany in the post-World War II generation. Um, but I ended in then Southwest Africa, which then became Namibia in the mid 60s as a son of immigrants. I joined the anti colonial movement there in the early 1970s at a time when it was far from being opportunistic. Actually, I was uh, then the first white who joined uh, the anti colonial liberation movement. I was exiled in the sense that I was forced to live again in uh, West Germany, and I returned to Namibia at independence in 1990 only to become then during the first decade into independence very critical about what I call the limits to liberation. That our national sovereignty turned out to become another elite project where there is a new elite enriching itself again at the expenses of the majority of the people. That didn't make me very popular. So as a result, uh, I was lucky enough that I got the offer in 2000 to relocate again and opened a new chapter with 15 years of age to become the research director of the Nordic Africa Institute in Uppsala. So I came with my family to Sweden, and six years into the job, the Dark Hammarskjöld Foundation was looking for a new executive director. And uh, I felt very flattered because the board of the foundation approached me and asked me, with reference to my background, if I would be willing to consider the job. And at that time already, I had uh, basically in my mid-50s accumulated the insight that integrity matters and that values matter and that principles matter. And so Dark Hammarskjöld, despite being from a very different political background, had already then been a kind of a role model in what he represented. So it didn't take me very long to say, yeah, I would feel honored if the last part of my professional life would be uh, to be uh, acting in the name of Dark Hammarskjöld and cultivating his legacy and bringing it into public discourse today. So 
that's the background, and I never regretted it. Um, then when Susan Williams' book came out um, and I was approached, the board was not very enthusiastic that the Hammerschild Foundation should be involved in all those efforts, but they couldn't object to me being involved as an individual, which I did, that I always made the point it's the individual Henning Melber speaking and not the executive of the Dark Hammerschild Foundation, which kind of admittedly is maybe a bit of an artificial uh, division. But I managed always to, to bring it across that it's not acting on behalf of the foundation. Um, that's basically the history, and I feel very privileged that uh, I have been uh, able to list something which... <laughs> which I feel kind of resembles features with all modesty, minor modest features of a lifestyle or a commitment and engagement into issues uh, which maybe I would hope so Dark Hammarskjöld would have approved of. I think so. <laughs> well, I think we'll end it there. I wanted to read three quotes from Hammarskjöld just to end the show. Um, I found these in Susan Williams' book. Um, the first is just a short one, and it goes like this, about the United Nations. Oh, well, and humanity in general, I think. Um, we strive to bring order and purity into chaos and anarchy. In another talk, he said that from, his, from generations of soldiers and government officials on his father's side, I inherited a belief that no life was more satisfactory than one of selfless service to your country or humanity. This service required, likewise, the courage to stand up unflinchingly for your convictions. And then the last two. This one in regard to John F. Kennedy. Because um, as you mentioned, Kennedy and Hammarskjöld kind of were in conflict a bit in the Congo. But after Hammarskjöld died, Kennedy kind of revised his, his thoughts a bit. And he, he said, let me see if I can find it here. Okay. So he said that because it was too late now to offer an apology to Hammarskjöld, he wished to do so to Linner, um, Sture, the, whom you mentioned earlier. I realize now, said Kennedy, that in comparison to Dog, I am a small man. He was the greatest statesman of our century. And then Susan Williams comments, unlike Kennedy, or indeed the first UN Secretary General, um, Hammarskjöld did not make compromises with the political establishment. And then the last quote from Hammarskjöld, we can put our influence to the best of our understanding and ability on the side of what we believe is right and true. We can help in the movement towards those ends that inspire our lives and are shared by all men of goodwill in terms very close to those of the Charter of the United Nations. Peace and freedom for all in a world of equal rights for all. Yep. Very true. And you made a very good selection. May I add one of my favorite quotes? Absolutely. Hamashad once said, if we all want to play safe, we end in utmost insecurity. Good words to live by. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much, Henning, for being on the show and talking to us. Uh, I think we it, all we all had a, a great time, and we learned a lot. 
And yeah, I'm just very happy to have, have talked with you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm sorry that I couldn't articulate some of my thoughts better, but at least I hope the empathy and the passion comes across. Absolutely. And it was a huge uh, pleasure to, to interact with you folks. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Henning. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, take care. Okay. Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope we have him on the show once again. Yeah. To talk about things. Oh, yeah. Hopefully things develop a little bit more. I mean, there, there's so much more to discuss than just his, his very sad demise. But, yeah, we'll, well, we'll probably come back to the show but uh, <laughs> in another show. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and take care. We'll see you next week.